Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Let us listen together for the word of God. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Let us listen again for God's word to us. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, if even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, As in fact, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, through whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have been so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols. So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, we saw Jesus call his first disciples. And without any time to reflect on that, to realize what they had signed up for, to ask any questions about what's going on, Jesus shows them it's time for action. It's time to get moving. Everything in Mark's gospel happens very quickly. This is Jesus' first act of public ministry recorded in the gospel of Mark. And as we see here, Mark chooses to begin the story of Jesus 
with a healing story. Though calling it a healing story isn't quite right either. You know. So Jesus and his newly called disciples, they head out together towards Capernaum. And since it's the Sabbath, they go to the synagogue, where Jesus begins to teach, and many people are astounded by his teaching. Because, because they say, he teaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes. So right away we see Mark setting up this distinction, this kind of this conflict that's brewing between him and the scribes. This nobody from Nazareth and the people who are in charge of the religious institution, those who are in power in that place. And right away, people notice his authority. But, as we see, it's not just people who notice his authority. There is a man with an unclean spirit in their midst, and that spirit calls out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And that spirit identifies him as the Holy One of God. The presence of this man who is tormented by this unclean spirit is, is jarring. Was, was he in the synagogue the whole time? Was he listening to Jesus teach just like everyone else, but nobody was aware? Did he sneak in the back door when no one was looking? You know, Capernaum is not a big town. It's, it's very small. He, he must have been someone that everyone in the town knew. Everybody in that synagogue must have known who this man was. Did they know before this that he was oppressed by this unclean spirit? Did they even know anything was wrong with him at all? So often there are people right in our midst, living and even worshiping right alongside us, going about their daily lives, suffering from all sorts of ailments of which we know absolutely nothing. Even in small towns like Capernaum, people have secrets, and we try to hide our pain. But Mark shows us that Jesus wants to bring to light what we would prefer to keep in the dark so that he can liberate us from our suffering and drive out that darkness. But what I think is really fascinating about this whole ordeal is that after Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and drives it out, the people respond by saying to one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Immediately they recognize in the person of Jesus that God is doing a new thing. But when he heals this man of his unclean spirit, for some reason they call it a teaching. They call his healing a teaching. I think there's all sorts of things we could call this act, this thing that Jesus did for that man, but I kind of doubt that any of us would immediately refer to it as a teaching, right? It's, it's kind of strange. But the importance of the healing or teaching or whatever you want to call it is, is the authority that it displays just like when he was previously teaching in the synagogue. There is something different about this rabbi from Nazareth. He has an authority <clears throat> unlike any they'd seen before. They can tell that this is a guy who came to shake things up. He has upset already, already upset the balance at the synagogue. The lines that were clearly drawn have been crossed. At the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, we were told that in the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God had come near. And in this first public act of ministry, we see what the embodiment of the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like people being set free from their oppressive demons and spirits. It precipitates amazement and astonishment by all who witness it. And it breeds contempt among those in power. 
Here we see the beginnings of what will be Jesus' constant challenges of the authority of the religious elite, which will also include his challenges to Roman authority. Competing authority is this pervasive theme all throughout Mark's gospel, as we'll see throughout this year. And Mark wants, Mark wants us to clearly recognize the authority of Jesus' teachings and deeds over against those who would seek to silence him and ultimately put him to death on a Roman cross. So this, this act of healing or exorcism, or whatever we want to call it, is a teaching because it's a demonstration of the inbreaking of God's kingdom in our midst. It's an exhibition of God's love for God's people. And what we begin to realize, especially in Mark's gospel, is that Jesus often teaches with his actions even more than with his words. Jesus chooses to exercise his authority by, by putting God's love and power on full display to release a man who had been held captive for far too long. And the people recognize that authority and are amazed by it. Similarly, in the letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, which we read this morning, we see a community that is struggling with this question of authority. In chapter 8, the issue that the congregation seems to be wrestling with is whether or not they can eat meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols, like in pagan worship. Corinth was this large cosmopolitan Greek city. The church that Paul helped plant there was, was most likely populated mostly by Gentiles, although there was certainly some diversity there. So what you have essentially is, is a bunch of people who used to participate in these pagan worship celebrations who have since converted to, the, to belief and the one true God of Israel, who now, who now know that they can no longer participate in those festivals and make sacrifices to those other gods, right? That's, that's easy enough. Don't worship with the pagans. We can do that. But there's this kind of murky gray area that arises because the meat that was used in those pagan rituals, animals that were sacrificed to these various idols, were then often sold as meat in the marketplace that you would buy you know, for dinner, things like that. So if you went down to the, the Corinthian farmer's market and bought yourself you know, some free-range goat for dinner, there's a good chance that you were buying some idol meat, right? Meat that had been sacrificed previously to some foreign god. And it even seems like there were some people who were partaking in the feasts that, uh, that they, they may have been actually in the temples of these idols themselves. That maybe they weren't participating in the worship or in the sacrifice, but there were these, they'd have these big festivals after, after the sacrifice was performed. And so it seems like some of these Christians are at those temple festivals partaking of that food. And for some, this is incredibly scandalous. You know, they, they think, you know, we left that old life behind. How can you still participate in these things? So as you might imagine, this led to many arguments, many uh, controversies. On the one hand, you had people who said, well, you know, we know that these idols are false, that there are no other gods, and we're not participating in the worship. So what's the big deal, you know, if, if we eat the meat? It's really good meat. How can we turn down a good barbecue? And there's others who would equate eating the meat with participating in the worship. And then they would see that and suddenly think that maybe it's okay for us to worship Jesus alongside these other gods. So eating idol meat kind of danced this fine line uh, along the boundaries of what was acceptable or not for this early Christian community 
that was still struggling to determine its identity. And Paul's response is very interesting. He says to the meat eaters, you are absolutely right. It's no big deal to eat the meat. We know there's no false gods. It's not a big deal. We know that it's okay. So you should stop doing it at once. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Paul sets up this dichotomy of knowledge and love and insists that in all things, love trumps knowledge, always. He tells the meat eaters, yeah, you're absolutely right. These idols are false. As long as we don't participate in that worship, we're fine because we know there was only one God and one Lord. But not everyone understands this. Not even all the folks in your church, in your community, understand this. There are some who, Paul says, have weak consciences and perhaps even less knowledge who, if they see you eating this idol meat, they might be led astray. They might be led to participate in this idol worship. So this gets us back to the question of Christian freedom and how we exercise that freedom that Christ has given us. We know, right? we have knowledge, we know that we are free to do this. We know that it's not a sin. So why is Paul telling us that we shouldn't? Paul shows them that their knowledge, the things that they know, are preventing them from truly loving their brothers and sisters in their community. It doesn't matter if you're right, Paul essentially says. You need to be loving one another and bearing each other's burdens. We often have a tendency, I think, to think of sin in, in these really kind of black and white terms, right? It's either right or wrong. It's good or evil. And in some cases, that works. It works just fine. But Paul reminds the Corinthians, and I think us, that we also live in a world of deep grays. Paul shows them that sin can often be contextual and relational. It may not be a sin to do this one thing in and of itself, but if it becomes a stumbling block for someone else, then it is. It's a bit like saying, you know, we might draw the analogy that you know, it's, it's okay to have a, you know, a beer or a glass of wine with dinner. That's no problem. But if someone you love is struggling with alcohol addiction, you probably don't want to drink in front of them, right? That, that might be, that's an example of a relational type of, of sin that, that, might, that we might say. So Paul reminds us that it all comes down to our love for one another. The freedom and authority that we have mean nothing if we don't have love and concern for our brother and our sister. Love is the ultimate criterion by which all our actions will and should be judged. When we have these moral quandaries or questions, we, we shouldn't first attempt to answer them based on knowledge alone. These are not merely intellectual thought experiments. We should be asking whether or not it is loving to our neighbor whether or not we are loving others as we are loving ourselves. Because as Paul reminds us, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we're called to be builders, not puffers. In our denomination right now, we are facing difficult questions of authority, and I think also of love. Many in our church think they are discerning a movement of the Spirit in a new direction, a new teaching while others remain committed to the traditional teachings and ways of understanding Scripture. At our Presbytery meeting next Saturday, we'll be voting on a number of really thorny issues, and one in particular is getting a lot of attention related to marriage. And ultimately, for many, what it comes down to is a question of the authority of Scripture and how we read and discern the will of God through Scripture. 
Now, I'm not one to tell you from the pulpit what to believe or, or how to think about certain issues, uh, mostly because in, in the Presbyterian Church, we affirm that God alone is Lord of the conscience. These are things we have to, uh, matters we have to decide for ourselves in community and uh, guided by the Word and by the Spirit. But I do hope that however we vote as a Presbytery, in whatever direction our denomination moves, that we will continue the work of building up the church through love. When we have to make these difficult decisions and have difficult conversations that make us uncomfortable, it's startling how quickly love can go right out the window. And even the most loving people of all sorts of persuasions who think this way or that way can quickly become ugly and mean-spirited. I think, hopefully, I think, we all recognize that Christ is the ultimate authority. But Paul also helps us recognize that sometimes it can be difficult to understand how to live out that authority, how to live out the authority of Christ in love. And we all also need to recognize that loving each other is far more important than being right. Because being right, or knowledge, puffs up, but love builds up. Amen.